I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I know you think they're sappy and bland. And you hated La La Land. But I gotta make you understand They can be profound and beautiful So I need you to like musicals Now let me tell you something. Either you are closing your eyes to a situation you do not wish to acknowledge, or you are unaware of the caliber of disaster indicated by the presence of a pool table in your community. Hi everybody. Welcome to I Need You To Like Musicals. I believe this is episode 5. I, in fact, I know it is. Welcome to episode five of I Need You to Like Musicals. Today's pairing, I'm not going to lie to you. I want to be very clear about this up front. It's a real stretch. Um, I just really wanted to talk about these two shows, and I found a smart-ass way to connect them. They have very little to do with each other. We're going to talk about The Music Man and Jesus Christ Superstar. Not in that order. But first, here's some news in the world of Broadway. Quite appropriately taken from broadwayworld.com. Something opened at the La Jolla Playhouse this weekend, or something is opening rather, um, called the Untitled Unauthorized Hunter S. Thompson Musical. Yeah, so it got good reviews. The music is by the guy that wrote Be More Chill, which I haven't seen, but people seem to like it. Um, maybe I'll immerse myself in it at some point and do an episode on it. I think I've heard one or two songs and it sounded pretty good. Uh, this sounds like a terrible idea. I can't imagine it's good. It's Apparently it is, but it's hard to it's hard to imagine this being good. because And not just because it's a musical, but I feel like any narrative work about Hunter S. Thompson that's not written or controlled by him is doomed to fail. Uh, exhibit A, Where the Buffalo Roam, starring Bill Murray. I do enjoy Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas on a certain level. Maybe I wouldn't now. I liked it when I was a little druggy boy. Um, but uh, I don't know. It's, when people do, an, there's a lot of these unauthorized musicals. They used to do them a lot here in Los Angeles at uh, Rockwell Table and Stage. There was like the unauthorized Stranger Things musical, the unauthorized Mean Girls musical, and then they made Mean Girls the musical proper. But I mean, uh, I don't understand. Is that like a legal thing? Do you have to put that in the title so that you don't uh, get sued? Because it's very hacky. Anyway, um, of course this one's unauthorized because Hunter S. Thompson has been dead for about 20 years. He was one of those people that defy addiction recovery narratives. You know, usually if there's a Hunter S. Thompson figure, uh, somebody that's defined by their drug use, the climax or the, I mean the arc of that story involves uh, some recovery and soul searching and he was one of those kind of like Keith Richards where they just uh, did drugs forever and like oh well you know and that's I think if you're somebody that doesn't want recovery <laughs> you can point to a Hunter S. Thompson or a Keith Richards and say well look at them they never had a uh, moment of recovery redemption and they're fine well they're apparently not fine I mean Hunter S. Thompson we learned was not uh, but you know, the mystery of that is a lot more interesting than maybe writing a musical about it. I don't know anything about this musical. So I'm just, I'm catastrophizing about how they deal with his suicide. And um, I probably shouldn't. Anyway, <clears throat> maybe I should go see it. I mean, I'm not that far off from San Diego where La Jolla is. Or I guess it's in La Jolla, which is San Diego adjacent. 
Should I go see this Hunter S. Thompson business? I've never been to the La Jolla Playhouse. I know that a lot of wonderful magical things happen there. Anyway, give me one second. I have to take a sip of my peach-flavored energy drink. My Alani. And yeah, not a lot of preamble in this episode, which I'm sure it will be a welcome thing to a lot of you. So we're going to start today with Jesus Christ Superstar. I'm not going to do this bullshit that I did last week where I um, I save the more popular one for last. That's It's not the more popular one. It's from two different times. It's the flashier one, that's for sure. Or maybe it isn't, I don't know. Um... Do I need you to like this one? Probably not. Um, I, I need you to like aspects of it. Um, here's the thing about Jesus Christ Superstar. It's all very silly. <laughs> it's a silly thing. Silly little show. Silly little soundtrack. I am not remotely Christian. I was raised uh, in a small seaside community in the greater Los Angeles area where there was a Methodist church in the center of town that we went to from time to time, certainly on Christmas Eve, but sometimes just on a normal fucking Sunday. My dad was Catholic, and he went to the Catholic church, and my sister ended up going to middle school at that Catholic school, church, and um, I don't care for the Catholics. If you're a Catholic and you're listening to this, then um, thank you for listening. I don't care for your religion. <laughs> Um, but, uh, I, I had a good time at this Methodist church. I, I guess maybe in contrast to the Catholic church, which I also went to with my dad from time to time, this one was a lot more fun, a little more user-friendly. You got the Sunday school you can go to. And the sermon of the pastor there, uh, who did not take a vow of celibacy and had himself a wife that was a hotsy-totsy, uh, you know, he would do, uh, th those are a little bit more accessible, those sermons. But the one unifying <laughs> element of the Protestant Methodist Church and the Catholic Church is uh, our friend Jesus, our buddy Jesus Christ. If you are a devout Christian, I don't think you're going to like this episode. But if you're not a fucking baby, maybe you can bear with me <laughs> and uh, just realize that I am going to go to hell for the things that I say and that um, it's, you know, it'll, it's fine. It's, it, it doesn't reflect on you. The interesting thing about talking about Jesus Christ Superstar is it finally gives me an opportunity to dig into this Andrew Lloyd Webber character. I've talked a lot of shit about Andrew Lloyd Webber since the early days of this podcast when it was called Sondheim on Adderall. I had some weird idea as a kid or as an adolescent that there were these two camps, the Sondheim camp and the Andrew Lloyd Webber camp, and you had to like either Sondheim or Andrew Lloyd Webber. That's a little juvenile, obviously. Uh, I think maybe there were these camps more in the mid-90s, and history has proven who the real king is of musical theater, and also these other figures rose up. I think when all is said and done, if you look at the body of work, Sondheim is light years better, and Andrew Lloyd Webber basically sucks. It's just, I don't think there's much debate about that. Um, now saying that, that being said, I will concede that Andrew Lloyd Webber is a pretty good melodist. Actually, a really good melodist. You know, those songs are infectious for a reason. It's no accident. 
I do think if you look at the arc of his career, it's pretty clear that he started strong out of the gate and then got worse and worse and worse as he aged. Um, he has stated in an interview, which I don't know when or where it was given, that he could never write Jesus Christ Superstar today because he doesn't have the youthful energy that he had when he wrote it. And it shows. Sondheim, uh, alternatively, I think got better and better up to a point. He had uh, a run of getting better and better from 1978 to 1990, and then kind of sat back and stopped, uh, even though he wrote one and a half and another half, so total of two new things. Um, he was reaching his artistic peak in the 80s, which was the same time that Andrew Lloyd Webber was reaching his commercial peak. But I, if you ask me, I think the work was getting worse and worse with things like Phantom of the Opera and Cats. People love Phantom of the Opera. Most people will admit Cats is bad, but they have a nice time singing those songs like Memory, which is fine. Stay tuned for a Cats episode. Ah, God, fucking Cats. I didn't... Whatever. So, um, let's talk a little bit about the history of how Jesus Christ Superstar came to be. Uh, this is one of the early collaborations with Tim Rice, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice. I'm going to tell you something. They met when they were 17 years old, and that's when they started writing some piece of shit that never got off the ground <laughs> called The Likes of Us. Uh, that's their first musical that they did little, uh, they tried to trot it out later after they became gods of musical theater. Some friend of the family at the time, when they heard the musical that these guys wrote, they, they asked these two to write a piece for their goddamn school choir. And this poor son of a bitch ends up with Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. He brought that into the world. Uh, and Joseph is that, you know, pastiche city. We got uh, Calypso, we got country music, we got uh, Elvis music, and, you know, oh, ha, 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 how interesting. You know, oh, each one of the brothers has their own genre of music. So they do that. Uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat is a sort of a preview for what's to come. In fact, even that final song... Any dream will do. Certain people have interpreted that to be a prophecy of the coming of Christ, which is also a prophecy for the coming of a musical about Christ. So eventually they get around to writing Jesus Christ Superstar. Allegedly, the arc of uh, the show, Jesus Christ Superstar, Tim Rice is inspired by the Bob Dylan song, uh, God on Their Side. Which, you know, there's one line in there that's, you know, even Judas Iscariot had God on his side. You know, how, how interesting, you know. <laughs> so the, the whole, if you don't know, if you're, if you're a fan of Jesus, but not a fan of Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, all you need to know that it's, it's the last seven, it's the passion. They call it the passion. You call it the passion. Person that I'm talking to, hypothetical person that knows about Jesus. Uh, the, the last seven days of Jesus's life, but the sort of twist on it, there's a couple twists on it. The first thing is that Judas is not just some asshole villain that wanted some gold and silver. He is a guy that felt that Jesus and his whole movement was getting out of control and he uh, burned down the village in order to save it, so to speak. But then the other take on it is that, uh, oh, what if... Jesus was 
a celebrity in the way that we uh, look at celebrity in the late 20th century. Uh, hence the title, Jesus Christ Superstar. You get where we're going with this? Good. Um, they throw in two trunk songs when they write the musical. Uh, Try It and See, which becomes King Herod's song. Uh, that was a failed song that they submitted to Eurovision that didn't make it to Eurovision. And then they wrote some piece of shit called Kansas Morning, and that becomes I Don't Know How to Love Him. One of the big hits from the show. I assume it's something like Da 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 Kansas Morning. Da 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 Kansas Morning. Kansas Sun. <laughs> it's Kansas Sun. In the morning in Kansas. Anyway, something like that. Um, what's interesting about JCS, uh, and you will find that I have a weird tick where I cannot shorten titles of things that I respect, but I'm fine shortening titles for things I don't respect. So I'll just call it JCS. So JCS uh, was a concept album first. Before it was on stage, they released it as an album. And they did that because they didn't have money. They didn't have the backing for a stage production. The concept album comes out in 1970. I will tell you that that album is a good entry point. Uh, or a fine one, anyway. If you want to immerse yourself in JCS, check out the original concept album in 1970. It has a sound and an energy to it that is uh, very exciting. It's the first way, uh, you know, all of my entry points that I suggest to you guys are just my entry points. It's even not, not even necessarily the best, but I need you to all be like me, so please get into it that way. You got Murray Head playing Judas, and he's so great. I cannot believe he's a white man. I would not have told you that that was a white man listening to it uh, in, when I was 16. Ian Gilliam sings the part of Jesus on this album, who... Uh, be, what, had just become the lead singer of Deep Purple talking to us about all that smoke on the water it's a hit, this thing is a hit uh, it goes on Broadway in 1971 with Ben Vereen playing Judas Clive Barnes from the New York Times he must have had so much power in the late 60s, early 70s because he could just make or break your show and he has such bad opinions. He keeps coming up in these. Uh, but anyway, it, he, he said, quote, The real disappointment was not in the music, but in the conception. And I just said that he's always wrong, but that's a pretty fair criticism of this. The music is great. The conception, not so great. There was apparently a huge problem with unauthorized pirate productions of this after the concept album came out. That's one of the drawbacks of doing that, of having a hit album before it's on stage. They had to keep shutting these down. Uh, there were uh, there was a group in Canada that like rehearsed in Canada and then like crossed the border into D Detroit and performed it there with like six hours notice. And they had to, th this guy was going around the country, Robert Stigwood, the legendary producer Robert Stigwood, like protecting his property and just shutting down Jesus Christ Superstar left and right. Um, obviously, obviously, this show was uh, controversial, condemned by religious groups. For a couple different reasons. There's the obvious one that uh, it's so the same reason that The Last Temptation of Christ got picketed. Christ? <laughs> the Last Temptation of Christ by uh, Martin Scorsese. It's the idea that Jesus is just a dude. He's like a guy with desires and uh, petty feelings. 
the musical never says he's a god. And that, uh, that pisses some people off. They never said that he's God. <laughs> not a God. They don't, uh, the, for instance, the resurrection is not in there. It just ends with him getting crucified. A lot of subsequent productions add a little uh, Easter egg where it suggests that he's resurrected. Which I think is a mistake. It's not the point here. It's kind of just a historical telling of a story. It's not... whatever. The musical never says he's God. Uh, they don't have the resurrection. Also, they don't like that Judas is so sympathetic, like I said. We need to blame somebody for this uh, crucifixion. And we Judas is a useful symbol for somebody we can hate and use as an idiom later and say, You, Judas. Is that an idiom? I don't know. And, uh, you know, not to say nothing of the Jews in general, you know, we need to, uh, some people need to have Judas plus the Jews as the people that we are mad at for Jesus being crucified. And that does not happen here. We, the, the Jews a little bit, the high priests, <laughs> Caiaphas and Annas, we'll get into that later. I'm sure we will. The concept album was banned by the BBC at first. The musical was banned in South Africa for being, quote, irreligious. And the Hungary People's Republic, they shut it down, I guess for kind of a different reason, they shut it down for distribution of religious propaganda. So there you go. It's the longest running musical on the West End, or at least it was, uh, surpassed then by, guess what? Fucking cats. What is wrong with our friends across the pond? Those are your favorites? Jesus. This is an interesting tidbit. Uh, Shostakovich saw this show right before he died, and he was all about it. He liked it. He was very impressed by the concept of a rock band underpinned by an orchestra. They do eventually make a movie of it. And I think this movie is really good. I enjoy this movie. I think maybe this movie is a good entry point. If you're not just into listening to music, go ahead and watch this movie. And I think it's good because the director, Norman Jewison, uh, he's a good director. He knows how to throw together a movie musical. He's the one that made Fiddler on the Roof, one of the best movie musicals in film history. He also, it's not a musical, but he made Moonstruck with Cher. Also, the actor playing Judas, Carl Anderson, is the best Judas you're likely to ever see. He did it on Broadway. He replaced Ben Vereen uh, at a certain point. And then he played this role for much of his life. After this musical comes out on Broadway, Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, they do a few more together, including Evita, which I'm also very excited to talk about. <clears throat> but then they stop working together. And in a pre-Google age, I thought that this was because of some falling out. But if you actually learn about it, it's, it's, it's a lot less dramatic. It's basically just Andrew Lloyd Webber has the dreadful idea to write Cats, which he does not need a lyricist for because he's just going to take the poetry of T.S. Eliot and set it to music. And by the time he got done with Cats, Tim Rice was on to other things. It's not anything too uh, spicy. Everything's fine. It is my humble opinion that Tim Rice is a terrible lyricist. It goes into my theory I talked about in the Ragtime episode that anytime it's somebody's job only to write lyrics, it's going to suck. I think that is the case here. And as we all know, or as some of us know, he becomes a Disney lyricist. 
suspiciously, right after, it's not suspicious at all, right after the death of the great Howard Ashman, who is the man that made Disney musicals good again with The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. There's a fantastic documentary about this on Disney Plus. If you want to give your money to an evil regime, go ahead and get a Disney Plus subscription and watch that. Um, I, when that came out, I got excited because that was my favorite part of the other documentary on Disney Plus called Waking Sleeping Beauty, which is about the resurgence of animated films in the 90s. And it is very clear that Howard Ashman deserves all of the credit for this, not just for writing really good lyrics to those shows or those movies, but, um, you know, he was the creative force behind the entire concept, really, of Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast prior to that. And he worked with Alan Menken, who ended up working with this Tim Rice idiot. And it's kind of where, I hate to say it, this may be uh, sacrilegious <laughs> in a different way. Uh, but when Tim Rice takes over for Howard Ashman, the, with Aladdin and The Lion King, they become kind of bad, these Disney movies. Sorry, I loved them at the time. But I think there's a chance that Aladdin is not good. And The Lion King, of course, he worked with Elton John, not uh, Alan Menken. He became Elton John's little buddy for a while, and they wrote some other shit together. We're going to point his point out his worst lyric offenses, Tim Rice, in this show as we go through it. He's not good. Tim Rice is bad. I apologize to Tim Rice and the Tim Rice estate. You're going to take some hits in this episode. I don't care for you. The revivals of Jesus Christ Superstar have been historically bad, uh, especially the more recent ones, because they try to update the rock sound to make it a more modern manifestation of rock and roll. And I don't know if you heard, but rock and roll is dead. It's long dead. It died at a certain point. So if you try to make it current... The music ends up sounding like uh, Stained, Linkin Park, Three Doors Down. We don't need that. We don't need that. There's a satisfying quality to the music on the original concept album because it's rock and roll from the 70s where it's got that sharp guitar solo energy to it. And it feels a little bit more authentic than how these revivals sound. They sound very canned in a sense. But, uh, you know, some notable revivals. There was one in the 90s that they involved Alice Cooper for some reason. It was weird. You know, playing King Herod. And I think that there's an album with that. And it sounds very strange. I hated the one in 2000. The year 2000. They made a little film of it. And it's fucking kabuki ridiculous. Uh, they try to reorchestrate re it. Like I said, it sounds canned and awful. The, um, the man playing Judas is uh, named Jerome Praden. He's terrible. And just ill-conceived. Jesus wears cargo pants. The most ridiculous part, however, and I think the performances are what really fucked this up. The guy playing Pontius Pilate is awful. I don't know if it's his fault. I don't even know what his name is. I don't want to get into it because I'd like to do my best to focus on what's good about this thing. But that version of Jesus Christ Superstar is putrid. It is all bad. There is no upside. And since I was getting into this show... Uh, around the time this thing came out this was the one that people referred to and I hated it it made me angry they did an arena tour of it in 2012 with Tim Minchin playing Judas and that was pretty good I'm not gonna lie the, different again the music didn't sound as good same problem with the orchestrations but great performances and um, I kind of like the concept I know it sounds crazy 
I don't like it when somebody takes a lot of liberties with their revival and tries to recontextualize it in a new place. Like, you know, uh, the music man, but it's uh, in Silicon Valley and that kind of shit. Uh, but because Jesus Christ Superstar is so ill-defined and bare bones and was defined by its uh, concept album, you do have a lot of space to take liberties. And it doesn't feel wrong when you get extra cute with your adaptation. And here, what they did was they made Jesus and his disciples like uh, Occupy Antifa kids, wearing hoodies and backpacks, and, you know, hashtag the 12 is um, the, uh, the thing, the, you know, the disciples. And I know it sounds really dumb, but it is good. It's all done on stairs, which is kind of interesting. Tim Minchin is surprisingly good as Judas, which is not to say that he's bad. And of course, we talked about him. He, he, he wrote Matilda the Musical and Groundhog Day the Musical, but he's also a performer in his own right. Uh, Sporty Spice plays Mary Magdalene, which is uh, fine. Okay, anyway, uh, that's a good one. I would not have suggested as an entry point, but if you become a Jesus Christ Superstar devotee, go ahead and watch that one. Now, my personal journey with Jesus Christ Superstar is uh, very storied and rich. I, um, so I, I went into this thing knowing very little about the story of the last few days of Jesus Christ's life. I remember s details from Sunday school. I remember the name Pontius Pilate, and I knew that he washed his hands. I didn't really know what that meant, though. Um, I, I saw Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat. Why did, I should just shorten that one because I have zero respect for it. I saw Joseph at my uh, former middle school because my little sister still went there and she was in it. And uh, at the time, I was charmed by it and sort of in spite of myself because I had a pretentious purist Sondheimian opinions. But there's some catchy tunes in that one. I mean, for me, I enjoy the ones that sound uh, more 60s. Uh, do 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 a coat of many colors, uh, more so than the ones that are pastiche. Um, so I did the usual process. I ran through the original cast recording in my bedroom, did that whole thing, the process, and sang the different parts. Uh, I ended up being in Evita in 10th grade, so I'm, I, I'm slowly dipping my toe into the Andrew Lloyd Webber world. And, at the, you know, although I acknowledge that it's nowhere near as good as the Sondheim world, I can't deny that some of it can be fun. And it's okay to be fun. We can have, people can have fun. <laughs> the show, um, the shows, the thing is, like, the shows are not good as complete works of art. And I stand by this now. It's got some nice melodies, the toe tap in good time, but the whole, from start to finish, I feel like they all feel long, first of all. They all feel overlong, and they all are kind of devoid of meaning, for the most part. Um, I think eventually, after it follows logically that I should at least listen to Jesus Christ Superstar, because I listened to Joseph, so it's like, okay, it's the sequel to Joseph. It's the other Bible-y one, and they wrote it right afterwards. Uh, I am given the cassette tape of the concept album. I expect it to be similar to Joseph. It is very different uh, in tone, for sure. Uh, there's a bunch of allusions and references to classic rock conventions, like musical references, that I don't understand yet. I kind of understood later. I read along with the lyrics. The lyrics are very stupid, but I find the songs exciting, especially the Judas songs. I am going to this arts high school, and at no point 
when I'm going to this arts high school, do I feel, do I not feel like I'm a little fish in a big pond? I will go in feeling that way and I come out feeling that way. I feel like an ingenue all the way through. The way the place is, especially in the theater department, the, the whole vibe is that what we're doing is very, very serious. And the teachers here possess godlike knowledge and us student tadpoles, we can only hope to come close to grasping pieces of their knowledge. Um, and so in the musical theater department, uh, which is like an elective, we put this on in the senior year. It's announced that we're going to do this. I'm excited. Uh, I strive to be cast as Judas. I love Judas. I want to be Judas. I, it's nerve-wracking. Casting day is nerve-wracking. I'm waiting to be picked up in front of my house, and there's a black cat walking towards me. And I go to great lengths to scare this black cat off and not cross paths with this black cat. I am deeply superstitious about this because it's like I, my heart will not start beating again until I get to school and I read the fucking sheet of paper on the wall with the cast list. I finally do get to school. I read the cast list. I didn't get the part. One of my best friends got the part. But I'm his understudy. And uh, so I, you know, I deal with that. I, I, I'm guaranteed an understudy performance, but that whole year ends up being fucked up. It's the year that my adolescence, my adolescence kind of falls apart. I move out of my family home right after I turn 18, after an incident with my mother while I'm still in high school. Uh, and I discover when I'm living with my grandmother in her spare room in an apartment that all I really want to do is get drunk and high all the time. And that's when that all sort of starts. And this understudy performance of Judas and Jesus Christ Superstar is kind of all I have to think or care about. And it's the one thing I'm looking forward to in life. I'm deathly jealous of my friend who is playing the role of Judas. Uh, we have all sorts of problems. Uh, we're still friends to this day, uh, thankfully. But that was, it was, it was, I, I was a dick about certain things. Um... One week prior to the performance, or a couple weeks prior, you know, I'm, I'm smoking a lot of pot, and I tell myself, I'm not going to smoke any pot, because this is the most important moment of my life, this understudy performance of Jesus Christ Superstar, so I'm going to make sure my voice, it's a very vocally demanding role, I'm going to make sure I have those notes. And um, then one week before the show, I go to a party, and somebody offers me some pot, and I say, sure, and I smoke it. So there you go. Um, the understudy performance happens, uh, it's fine, it's over. And it's like, uh, now what is there? I guess I should drink and smoke pot some more. And that's what I do for the next five years. Uh, I don't have perfect pitch, but to this day, I still use the song Heaven on Their Minds to find notes because I sang that song so many times that that high A, the Jesus, uh, I use that as a touchstone because that's, uh, I sang it so many times. Uh, so I, I, I find notes in relation to that A. There it is. Um, so anyway, enough about me. Let's talk about Jesus Christ Superstar as a whole. Uh, like I said, concept album, good entry point. It comes out of the gate hot. Well, if you listen to this thing, the overture is awesome. It's, uh, multifaceted. <laughs> uh, Heaven on Their Minds is the best song in the show. And it's the first song in the show. It's the best representation of Jesus Christ Superstar. It rocks where it should rock. It's theatrical where it should be theatrical. And it's a pretty radical move, um, concept-wise. 
you know, suggesting that kind of, it's kind of suggesting that the, that Jesus is the leader of a cult that's getting a little too dogmatic and out of control. It's a wild opening number. First of all, to have an opening number be a solo like that. Um, and, you know, it announced it. I think the character of Judas is the best part of the show. The concept of Judas. It can easily be ruined if you have Judas be a super dark and intense guy in a biker jacket, which is what that 2001 did. What I love about Carl Anderson's performance is that he portrays Judas as a guy who cares too much. You know, I, about what? I don't know. About the poor, I guess. That comes up a few times. He's, you know, Jesus' whole thing is blessed at the poor at first. But I guess in this telling of the story, he started to believe his own bullshit and just uh, gotten away from the ideals of caring about the poor. But Judas, that's his passion. Um, and Carl Anderson played the role of Judas practically his whole life. I saw him do it right before he died. He did it with Sebastian Bach playing Jesus. Who's Sebastian Bach? He's the lead singer of a band called Skid Row. Um, I love Carl Anderson's performance so much uh, that I, when I did the research now, I tried to listen to his solo albums from the 80s, and I'm sorry to say they're pretty unlistenable. I mean, they're just a little too 80s. And maybe they're not my kind of thing. Another interesting take on the Judas thing uh, is a play called The Last Days of Judas Iscariot, which I was also in, which, you know, coming full circle, but this friend I was so jealous of that played the role of Judas, he directed a production of this in 2009 that I was in. I played Sigmund Freud and I played Thomas, Doubting Thomas, and a couple other roles here and there. Really good play by Stephen Adley Gerges. It's actually like a really good read. It's a really fun play to read. It goes down real smooth. Pick up a copy of that play. If it's, you know, being put on somewhere, go ahead. It's very talky. I like talky plays. Anyway, right after Heaven on Their Minds, the musical takes a major shit. It goes from best to worst with a song called What's the Buzz? Tell Me What's a Happenin'. Where we go right back into Joseph Technicolor mode. And the biggest problem throughout is that Jesus as a character is very poorly written and very unlikable. Jesus is a petulant teenager in this. And I get that it's the last seven days of his life and they're trying to portray him as a regular dude. <laughs> and he's bummed about this prophecy and everything that he's going to die. But God damn it, it would be nice to see fifth, like five minutes of Jesus being nice to everybody. Isn't the point of Jesus that he's nice to everybody? Jesus is like in a shitty mood the whole way through this thing. I'm amazed that men like you can be so shallow, thick and slow. There is not a man among you who knows or cares if I come or go. All right, fucking crybaby. And then right after that is a very laughable thing where a, a crowd in harmony goes, No, you're wrong. You're very wrong. No, you're wrong. You're very wrong. And there's a lot of moments like that where it's like it makes you giggle. Because it's so uh, cartoonishly musical theater. Right after that, we get a good song. A great song, actually. Everything's all right. I've, maybe it's only good when it's sung by Yvonne Elliman, Elliman uh, who was on the concept album and is in the movie as well. And I think she maybe did it on stage. It's the better of the two Mary songs, if you ask me. Don't at me on that. I don't give a shit what you think. Uh, I don't know how to love him is fine, but this song is better. And it's because her voice, Yvonne's voice, is very silky and relaxing. It works really well as just a song to listen to. It's also impressive because it's in five, four, but it doesn't feel like it is. It's in, you know, it's got five counts. 
Do da do 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 one two three four five one two three four five. It's um, it's too bad that those Judas and Jesus parts are in it because they kind of speed bump it, and both of them, Judas and Jesus, are making terrible arguments. Um, if you don't know Judas, uh, he's he's being a total buzzkill. With the woman, your fine ointment, brand new and expensive, should have been saved for the poor. Why has it been wasted? He's mad that they're using the fine oils on Jesus' feet and hair instead of uh, using the money for it to give to the poor. So he's being like a, you know, a guy that talks down to you for using Dove shampoo because they do animal testing. Which is like, okay, you're right, but can you shut the fuck up? You fucking purist, asshole. But as if that's not bad enough, Jesus' response is horrible. <laughs> I mean, Jesus Christ, Jesus. Let's examine what he says in its entirety. He says, surely you're not saying we have the resources to save the poor from their lot. All right, it's a cop out. We don't, we can't, uh, we can't solve the entire poverty problem. So why should we do anything? And then he says, there will be poor always pathetically struggling. And every time someone plays this, they always hit pathetically, pathetically struggling. Look at the good things you've got. That doesn't sound very Christ-like to me. Throwing shade on the poor. Think while you still have me. Move while you still see me. You'll be lost and you'll be so sorry when I'm gone. He's making it all about him again. The whole point was that it's bad writing. I don't know if they're taking direct passages from the Bible here, but it sucks. I think it's pretty bad. We get a song called This Jesus Must Die, which uh, has some interesting moments. We meet Caiaphas with the extreme bass voice, where uh, it gives another opportunity to somebody, the guy that plays Hades, to play this role, Caiaphas, in a Jesus Christ Superstar revival. I remember being frustrated when I heard this on the first time, like, like, wow, there are truly no roles in this for me because I didn't have the high notes of Jesus and Judas. And then here comes Caiaphas and I don't have those low notes either. Like those are too low. Oh, gentlemen, you know why we are here. There's not much time and quite a problem here. It's, I think it gets even lower than that. We get one of the worst lyrics in this part. One thing I'll say for him, Jesus is cool. Shut up. Somebody's dad wrote that. It's, and, and they were too young to have written something so fucking square. Only a fucking square would write that. One thing I'll say for him, Jesus is cool. That's someone that doesn't know what cool means. Um, when we did it in high school, the high priests, Caiaphas and Annas, and the other priests were played by girls, women. I think this is a common choice because there's so little uh, female energy in the show that it's easy enough to switch the high priest into women. Although it uh, perpetuates the common Bible mistake of blaming everything on the ladies. Um, of course, otherwise, you know, the alternative is uh, blaming it on the Jews, which is what uh, these people are. But it's not like the Mel Gibson thing where they're like have... Uh, cartoonish Semitic features. They just happen to be Jewish in this case. They're not saying, yeah, this Jesus must die. You know, is that offensive? I apologize. I'm not Jewish. Um, 
they the, 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 they sing a song called Hosanna, which is garbage. It's the one that goes Hosanna, hey, Zana, 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 ho, Zana, hey, Zana. It's the first song that sounds like it's from a musical, especially with the Jesus' uh, Jesus's parts. Uh, the Simon song is a really good song. I am ignorant, though. Why is it called Simon Zelotes or Zelotes or Zelots? Like, what's with that ES? I tried to look this up, and I couldn't figure it out. Uh, I know he was called Simon the Zealot. Why is the song called Simon Zelotes? I'm sorry if you know the answer to this. If you're a theologian and you're annoyed that I you can't answer me because this is a one-sided conversation. That song has a lot of energy in it. It's really fun. The soloist on the original is kind of humdrum. The guy in the movie is fucking awesome. And it also, it does the thing. It does seem like it's a pause in the action to just sing a song saying uh, how much we love Jesus. But then it, it, it does pay lip service to we're going to move the story forward because we're learning that Simon wants him to keep on yelling their, keep them yelling their devotion, but add a touch of hate at Rome. He's got a political agenda. My uh, high school director's concept for this is that it should be a hip hop uh, dancing, which did not match the music, obviously. But uh, so they, one of the uh, students uh, was a hip hop dancer, taught us, spent a lot of time teaching us hip hop. And we did what I was told at the time was the Crip Walk. And uh, I was very excited. It took me a long time. It was hard. <laughs> but I learned the Crip Walk. However, I thought I learned the Crip Walk. Every time I show this to people, when I tell them I know how to do the Crip Walk, they say, Chris, that's not the Crip Walk. <laughs> so whatever I know how to do might not be the Crip Walk, but it is very uh, demanding and I still know how to do it. I really like Jesus' response to this. About the neither you, Simon, nor the fifty thousand, nor the Romans, nor the Jews, nor Judas, nor the twelve, nor the peace, nor the it's it's a rare case of the lyrics sitting on the music really nicely. Um, I think that that's a highlight in the score. I enjoy Pilot's Dream afterwards. It's interesting. It only works, I think, if you're listening to the LP and you see that it's a song called Pilot's Dream and you have a marginal understanding of who Pontius Pilate was and what he did. Now, I know that I said Everything's Alright was in five, but it feels very natural. Um, the opposite is true of the Temple song. That song is in seven, but it's distracting and unnatural. It's one of those cases where it's like you're just trying to be a smartass by putting this song in seven you could have added that eighth beat, but you are um, a tryhard. It adds the effect of feeling rushed, which doesn't, it doesn't need to feel rushed. Like, um, I think that, uh, that if you were going to utilize a song in seven, it should be where it's like we're in a big hurry. But why are we in a hurry? This is where Jesus gets mad, and it's straight out of the Bible. They take a direct quote from Jesus, but they make it all rock and roll. My temple should be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Fun little story about that. Uh, I lived in South Pasadena for about eight years, which is a wonderful little city here in the greater Los Angeles area. 
South Pasadena has an old movie theater called the Rialto that they shut down for a while, but it was still sitting there. And there, everybody had hoped that it would come back. When we were all teenagers, we used to go to midnight movies there. We saw Clockwork Orange at midnight, and we dressed up like the Clockwork Orange guys. But then, yeah, it shut down. They stopped screening stuff there. And then it was bought by a megachurch called Mosaic. Uh, if you're a member of Mosaic, uh, sit tight. I'm about to insult your church. I don't know too much about it, except that it's a very hip church with a bunch of young, really good-looking people. I imagine we'll probably see a documentary series at some point about the evils of Mosaic and all the secret shit that was going on, because it's just like one of the, it's just like the hill, it, it, it feels like the uh, Hillsong situation. And I used to, you know, there was some controversy because they leveled the seats, or the audience, like they leveled the fucking, so they made it so it could never really be a proper movie theater again and everybody got mad about that uh, rightly uh, rightfully uh it sucks that they're there i wish that the rialto was just a movie theater um but uh so i would walk my beloved husky cosmo around south pasadena you got to get take a husky on a long walk because if you don't it's practically husky abuse they need exercise or they get depressed and i would walk on sunday mornings <clears throat> they were having their services and they and, and it's so like they make it look like a club like you're going into uh, studio, uh, what is it? 54. Is it 54? Oh my God. But anyway, there's like a, a, a line with a club and a, a list. And they obviously do that on purpose to make it seem like the coolest, hippest church in the world. And I walked by with my Husky from time to time when I saw that. And I would be across the street and I would yell, Lenders in the temple! Lenders in the temple! So there you go. That's my story. Uh, and uh, let's move on. There's uh, there's a whole thing. The lepers come around and they creep Jesus out. Uh, see my eyes, I can hardly see. And then he gets overwhelmed and he goes, Heal yourselves! What an asshole. What a shitty thing to say to a leper. Because it's all about him. And so Mary has to calm him down again and he's got to wash his feet. And then she sings, I don't know how to love him, which I think is an overrated song. After that comes Damned for All Time, where if you hear at the very beginning of it, uh, you know, it's, it makes you laugh because it sounds exactly like the Batman theme song from the animated series. How does Judas know that Jesus will be in the Garden of Gethsemane? It's part I don't understand. Is the Last Supper near the, gar gar the Garden of Gethsemane? Because he tells, that's what they pay him for, just for saying, On Thursday night you'll find him where you want him, far from the crowds in the Garden of Gethsemane. When I did that in my understudy performance, which I should tell you, my understudy performance had a bunch of visiting schools, like field trips. Somebody in the back of the audience yelled, Stop! When I was betraying Jesus. It was very jarring. Anyway, um, then the, the, the uh, choir goes, Well done, Judas. Good old Judas. I happen to think that that's better when you can't decipher what they're saying and you just think it's just uh, some ethereal religious intoning, like maybe in Latin. If you look at the lyrics and you see that they're saying, Well done, Judas. Good old Judas. It's like, oh, that's stupid. John, the Gospel of John is the one that says the uh, badass line. Um, and then 
As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. That is not depicted here, but uh, that's a cool line. Intermission time. Come back from intermission. We got the Last Supper. The refrain from the Last Supper is stupid as fuck. The always hope that I be an apostle. It gives the apostles a little something to sing, and it sounds like a, a Beatles song maybe written by Ringo. Uh, and the worst, you know, the fact that the repeats, and the fact that in the second refrain they say, what's that in the bread? It's gone to my head. That's a stupid line. I don't understand the Eucharist, I guess, because... I thought we were eating, well, not we, but I thought the Catholics took the, ate the blood and the body um, because uh, I was surprised that in this show, anyway, Jesus says, is just saying, for all you care, this wine could be my blood. For all you care, this bread could be my body. Again, being very petulant. So it seems weird to then do that for the next 3,000 years. How many? Let's call it 2,000. And then we find out about Peter's denial here. The role of Peter is a thankless role. Um, in this version, Jesus and Judas have a little cat fight in uh, the Last Supper. You know. Uh, you liar, you Judas. That's so stupid. And then for no reason at all, Judas says, uh, a jaded Mandarin. A jaded Mandarin, like a jaded, faded, a faded, jaded, jaded Mandarin. That's not even a fucking quote from the Bible. Why, do they, why does he say that? Who the fuck would say that? And who would say it that many times? Then comes Gethsemane, which is a song where Jesus talks mad shit to his father, who is God. Boy, oh boy. I am in a uh, medieval and ancient literature class where we read the book of Job from a literary standpoint, not a religious one. And God's response to Job questioning his motives at all. You, let's just say we're lucky that Jesus is in the New Testament and he's not talking to the Old Testament God. Because God would have ripped him a new asshole for even asking those questions. Like Job demanding or asking anything of God made God be like, well, it's none of your fucking business. I'm God. You didn't understand me for, uh, at all. And then he says, can you make a hippopotamus? He literally says that. It's called a behemoth, but it's translated as hippopotamus. You think you're so fucking smart? Have, do you know how to? Do you know all the work it go, that goes into making a hippopotamus, motherfucker? I think so, my religious listeners who heard my warning but tried to stick it out, I think they just turned this off after that. I think that that really bummed them out. Sorry, guys. You can't hear me because you turned it off. I really enjoy the vocal differences between Jesus and Judas. I saw, like I said, Sebastian Bach from, um, what's it called? Skid Row. His performance was very unorthodox, but I didn't hate it because, um, you know, Jesus, normally vocally, he does the, ah! but it sounds a lot better than how I just did it. Sebastian Bach sounded like some otherworldly cat being when he did that. It was more like, ah! can't even imitate it. And it worked for me because it made me think, you know, Jesus is otherworldly. He's from heaven, I guess. I've never listened. And then I, I did listen to Skid Row eventually, and I stopped being a Sebastian Bach fan. It's just not my bag. I don't care for that type of music. Um, here's a bad lyric. God, thy will is hard, but you hold every card. How dare you? And then, like, oh, God, take me now before I change my mind. 
Who the fuck are you? What would happen if you changed your mind? Would you uh, not opt in to the prophecy that your father God is having you do? You don't have a choice. Stop acting like you have a choice. It sounds like a kid being forced to eat his vegetables and trying to bargain with his dad. You got no power here, Jesus. Judas betrays him with a kiss. They, they could have just left that part out. It's, it's a little weird. And then they do the what's the buzz reprise, which is even worse than the original. And there's a line about fishing, which makes zero sense if you don't know that Peter is a fisherman. <laughs> Why are you obsessed with fighting? Stick to fishing from now on. There's a whole thing here where the crowd turns on him out of nowhere, just like in Tommy. I feel like I get it now. It was confusing to me when I was younger. All right, we had a little unscheduled stop there. I'm going to be very honest with you guys. Um, I was feeling a little bit peckish and manic because I hadn't had any lunch and I had a lot of coffee and I had an energy drink and that's not the best idea in the world if you want to uh, I don't know maybe this I wonder if this is unlistenable or if it has been for the first hour I'm a little calmer now I had some leftover pizza from Antonio's <sighs> all right let's get into this I mean let's get back into this let's keep on going with this uh, so yeah, the crowd turned on him, whatever. Um, Peter's denial, Mary says, it's what he told us you would do. I wonder how he knew. It's an annoying line. Oh, maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe that's how he knew. Dummy. I'm st I wish we could, uh, read the gospel of Mary Magdalene that King James threw in the trash. Uh, I don't know if that's the actual, what actually happened. I'm just, I don't know. Um, King Herod song is intended to be the comic relief some much-needed comic relief in the story of the killing of Christ. Uh, but I'm curious, like, where the funny is. Like, what's funny about it, really? Especially on the concept album. It's like uh, Schoenberg-Bobile-level funny. Like, the Les Mis and Miss Saigon has, you know, respectively, they have Thenardier and they have The Engineer. And neither are actually funny, you know, because those guys are French and French don't understand comedy, which is why they like Jerry Lewis so much. But, um... So it's like not funny on its own, which is why if someone just sings Master of the House, you'd be hard pressed to just like laugh at that. But it's because everything has been so serious up to this point that anything with the tone of light comedy is very welcome palate cleanse. The voice of the man that sings King Herod's song in the original concept album, I found out is a man named Mike Diabo who wrote Build Me Up Buttercup. And that song, uh, Handbags and Glad Rags, you know, from The Office, the UK. The handbags and the glad rags that your granddad had to sweat so you could buy. In the movie, Josh Mostel makes it funny. He's great. Love Josh Mostel. If you grew up in my generation, you know him from Billy Madison as the uh, principal that uh, has the dark past as a wrestler. And in the arena tour version, they did a clever thing on this where they made King Herod's song and his whole world into like a cheesy British game show. And they had the audience text in like, Jesus, is he a lord or is he a fraud? Text this number. And then, you're nothing but a fraud is because that's what the one that, yeah. Judas's death, uh, like, so th there's ups and downs in Judas's death. We got that slime in the mud line, which sucks. Slime in the slime in the slime the mud and then he gets into a short reprise of i don't know how to love him which if done right is very moving 
the kids in the audience laughed when I started singing it because they thought it was like gay or something. And, uh, you know, also when I kissed him, betrayed him with a kiss. This was uh, very uh, heartbreaking to me who had uh, bet everything on this understudy performance that uh, people were laughing. Children were laughing. Now, um, Carl Anderson on Judas's death during this quiet part on the, especially when he does the, does he love me too? Does he care for me? Really effective. Really good. Tim Minchin, same. He does it in very much the same spirit. The lyrics are bad and they're kind of empty. And so, but the performers there are doing a lot of work. And then Judas hangs himself. I remember our tech rehearsal when my friend was playing Judas and we, they were going over how to do the hanging. I remember the director was arguing with the technical director. The director was like, well, you know, can't he just put the noose over his head and then we'll go to blackout? And the guy, the, uh, I forget his name, the technical director was like, no, G Gary, he can't be able to actually, he cannot be able to actually hang himself. It's ridiculous. It's really funny. He was like exasperated with, with that. Anyway, um, then for the whole rest of the show, Jesus uh, gives his little one-sentence answers. That's what you say. Are you the son of God? That's what you say. It's you that say I am. Annoying. God, Jesus is a shitty character in this. They add some lyrics in the movie. They lengthen. And I think they, in revivals too, they make the trial before Pilate longer. Or, Who is this Jesus? Why is he different? You Jews produce messiahs by the sack full. Is that true? Love to know more about that. Who are some of the other messiahs that came around during Jesus' time? And then it, they do a, the weird thing musically where the audience goes, crucify him, and crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Um, the musical has seemingly has no real bad guys, especially in the movie. They add an extra song in the movie called uh, Then We Are Decided. And it seems like the only reason to do that is to show that the high priests are politically motivated. And they have no choice but to do what they do to Jesus. And same with Pilate. They, they make it show, seem like Pilate is really in good faith. And at the end, he just has no choice but to wash his hands of the situation. So, yeah. Pilate's last thing that he sings is kick ass. And it's one of these things, um, like the thing in Rant I discussed last week, uh, the... Would you light my candle and she put on a pout and she wanted you to take her out tonight? It's this thing that doesn't really repeat at any other point in the score except in the overture. Uh, but it's so fucking cool and it sounds so awesome. The Don't let me stop your great self-destruction. Die if you want to, you misguided martyr. But then we go into Superstar, which is the song that everybody hums from this show. It's the song that, and it fucking sucks. It terrible lyrics. And if this it's, is this the point of all this, that's what it makes you wonder. Like, oh, what if Jesus had celebrity status in our time instead of having word of mouth fame in the middle of the desert? Who gives a shit? It doesn't matter. It's a stupid what if. Because celebrity status in our time would look nothing like what it was were it not for Jesus in his time. It's a child's what-if question. <laughs> I don't like it. The second verse of that song is criminally bad. Let's go through the whole thing. Because it's like, first of all, he changes the subject. <laughs> and he goes, Tell me what you think about your friends at the top. 
Who'd you think besides yourself was the pick of the crop? Uh, okay. Why are we talking about that? Buddha, was he where it's at? Is he where you are? Could Mohammed, could Mohammed move a mountain or was that just PR? Jesus, that's bad. That's just cornball as fuck. And also, it's, the question to that is obvious. He doesn't think those guys are as good as him. Because he's the one with the truth and the way and the light. You fucking idiot. Did you mean to die like that? Was that a mistake? Or did you know your messy death would be a record breaker? That's so... Like, I'm not even Christian, but I'm offended by this. Like, I'm not a member of this religion, but it feels disrespectful to equate what Jesus was doing with somebody trying to break, break records and be the biggest star in the land. And then they crucify him. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Why is there a jazz piano exploration during his crucifixion? It's very weird. They should have added an epilogue with the whole thing about the good, the good thief. Um, that's one of the few Bible stories I know that are not in Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, just because I heard John Darnielle from the Mountain Goats tell this story on a great podcast called I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats. And he started crying talking about it, uh, where there's a thief on the cross next to Jesus because a bunch of people are being crucified at the same time. And this thief is like, hey, let me into your kingdom when you get there. Don't forget me when you get to your kingdom. And Jesus says, okay. So this guy gets into the kingdom of heaven just for asking, and he never would have gotten the opportunity to ask Jesus for entry into heaven had he not been a thief, had he not been a bad person. And that's an inspiring story for us addicts who, uh, you know, did bad things and are looking for some sort of grace. They also could have added the Easter Bunny at the end. That would have been uh, apropos. Because, you know, that's in the same weekend, right? How many days... I don't understand how it works. I know Good Friday is when we, he died and then Sunday is when he rose up. Ugh. A couple of stray notes here that are had to do with the movie. Um, I, mean, so, I mean, it's a great movie musical. The opening sequence, is it silly? Sure. But the whole thing is silly and it's uh, fittingly silly. It's a whole bunch of hippies in a dumb hippie van and they're going into the middle of the desert. And they're doing like a, a little masquerade. They're doing a little performance. We're going to act out the story of Jesus. They're all putting on little costumes. I like it. They're all setting it up during the overture. I love how Josh Mostel comes out in his t-shirt and he's just not helping at all. He's sitting in a fucking beach chair while they're all setting up. And um, the great uh, Mr. Show, they do a parody of this, which really blew my mind. I was like, wow, other people know about <laughs> Jesus Christ Superstar, the movie. It's not just me watching it by myself. Uh, people 20 years later know about this thing enough to make a parody of it on HBO. Check that out. Mr. Show with Bob and David. Uh, Mid-90s. Uh, I forget what the episode's called. It's in maybe the first season, I want to say, or the second. The biggest failure in Broadway history. Something like that. Look it up. Watch it on YouTube. Just look up Mr. Show, Jesus Christ Superstar parody. Carl Anderson rules as Judas. Ted Neely sucks as Jesus. Did I say that right? Carl Anderson, Judas, Ted Neely, Jesus. Um, and again, it's partially due to the writing of the characters, but Ted Neely kind of just seems like a dumb L.A. surfer. Apparently, these two men were really good friends for decades. They kept reprising their roles, and they always insisted on performing together. Like, one of them would be like, I'm not doing it without Ted, or I'm not doing it without Carl. I heard somewhere that Ted Neely had kind of lost his mind and started to believe he was really Jesus, and like, he could heal people. But again, 
doing the research for this, it's one of those pre-Google half-truths I told you about before. If you actually look it up, what really happened was that um, uh, people started to think of him as Jesus because he played the role for so many years, and they kept trying to come to his dressing room after the show to be healed, and it creeped him out. So apologies to Ted Neely for thinking that all these years. Um, and, you know, that was, don't, don't start rumors like that, everybody. This is one of the good things about the Internet. <laughs> you can debunk things easily. But then maybe it's, you know, don't trust the information on the Internet either. Who cares? There's two new songs. Like I said, Then We Are Decided. That's a good song. I enjoy it. Um, it's not a bad song. <laughs> it's, uh, but I, I, uh, yeah, the political motivations. And then they sing This Jesus Must Die, and it sounds repetitive. But This Jesus Must Die sounds more like the song of villains with amazing hats. The guy playing Simon, like I said, is so fucking awesome. The way they film Simon Zelates, 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 is amazing. With the people appearing out of thin air, awesome dancing. I love how they have their Roman soldiers standing guard on the perimeter of where they're dancing. Larry Marshall, by the way, is the name of the guy that played Simon. He is going all out. He is swinging for the fences. He looks like he's gonna fucking crack his face open. Uh, right before Damned for All Times, there's that intro with the flutes, and they have these, uh, Judas is just like hanging out alone, and then these tanks roll through. Whew, it's really cool. It's really good. It's a good film. Then the, uh, the Last Supper, like all of a sudden everything's very green. Is there in a garden? How does that work? Are there, is there, are there actual gardens in the middle of Israel or wherever the fuck we are? Is that a really ignorant question? I'm sorry. Carl's delivery. Carl Anderson's delivery of the every time I look at you, I don't understand in the middle of the Last Supper. It's heartbreaking, even though it's way over the top, especially the way he runs away and the sheep run with him. When uh, Ted Neely's doing Gethsemane, he's like climbing a mountain very much like Tommy at the end of Tommy, but a less happy version of it. <laughs> And then in the middle of that, with the instrumental, they do a sequence where we see all the works of art depicting the crucifixion, uh, as if to say this is the information that Jesus is getting from God when he asks his demanding questions during the... And that's cool. The dude playing Pontius Pilate in the movie is the dude from Fiddler on the Roof. He must be a buddy of old Norman. He played Mendel in Fiddler. He's fine. Uh, his last part with the hand washing is not is not quite there. It's not as good as it could be. On the Don't Let Me Stop, Your Great Self-Destruction. Uh, like I said, Josh Mostel, son of the great Zero Mostel. We are a fiercely pro-Zero Mostel podcast. Uh, apparently, this he started out as a boy soprano, Josh Mostel, when he was younger. Could we start again, please? That's the other song they added. Sorry, I got a little uh, off track there. Um, I think it was added for the movie, but now it's in most stage versions. It's a pretty song. They, It's probably for the sake of trying to give Mary one more song. In the movie, it's weird because it looks a lot like I'd like to buy the world a Coke, the commercial from, uh, you know, the 60s that Mad Men pretended like Don Draper wrote, I guess. Like, it's, it's pretty and, uh, you know, it's boilerplate Andrew Lloyd Webber. A nice, pretty melody with a fuzzy, vague meaning. Could we start again, please? What does that mean in this context? Final thoughts on Jesus Christ Superstar before we get to show number two. There are people who think that musicals should just be a diverting good time and they don't need their musicals to be well-crafted works of art that tell a good story. 
and more power to them. I need you to like musicals. So if that's the way that you're going to like musicals, please do. But if you are somebody, the, the whole purpose of this podcast is for people that like good storytelling, um, like in, in film and novels and think that musicals can't do that. I'm trying to prove that they can. So Jesus Christ Superstar is not a good way to do that. So please do not immerse yourself in that if you don't like musicals already. But I've got some great news for you. The second half of the show is a musical that I do need you to like. And it is a wonderful musical called The Music Man. Wholesome. Delightful. But most importantly, really inventive and original. Nothing like it up to that point. Not much like it since. Book, music, and lyrics by Meredith Wilson. He had a few more after this, and I'm not familiar with really any of them, but now I want to be. Um, and I, I'm not saying that I saw Music Man for the first time this week. I'm familiar with the Music Man, but I just appreciate the shit out of the Music Man. And I don't always love these uh, Golden Age era shows, but this one, uh, I think this is the best one. <clears throat> it premieres on Broadway in 1957, but it's actually set... The story is set in 1912. And even though it's set in 1912, it has a lot of post-World War II American values and idealism in it. Uh, or uh, not idealism, what's the... Uh, exceptionalism. American exceptionalism in it. Uh, but yeah, very 50s. Takes place in 1912. So tell all of these Iowans to please not buy a ticket to sail on the Titanic. Because we definitely want them to stay safe. And uh, it's very cold out there in the Atlantic Ocean. It's a wonderfully ideal, idealized version of like small town patriotic American life, which is why it's so often referenced as a cliche. It's a high school community theater staple, probably due to its wholesomeness, but also due to the fact that it's still funny and interesting, even though it's quite wholesome. Um, I finally watched Schmigadoon season one and a little bit of season two. I avoided it for a long time because I had a misconception about what it was based on the title and some of the previews. Uh, the title made me think it was going to be musical theater people humor, which is like, oh, hi, Shumigadoon. <laughs> um, but no, it, it was it's genuinely funny and genuinely entertaining. I liked it a lot. It's uh, So Music Man is arguably the most represented musical in Shmigadoon, the most parodied. Um, that one, and then, of course, Carousel and Sound of Music and all those other things. Uh, it, it's, it, also, it's one of those things, The Music Man is one of those references that are made when you watch The Simpsons as a kid that you don't, where you don't get the reference until you grow up, and you're like, oh, that's what that is. The, the famous monorail episode of The Simpsons is very clearly based on Harold Hill and The Music Man. And that episode was written by the great Conan O'Brien before he was a talk show host and he was just a young man from Harvard working as a writer on The Simpsons. So there you go. Um, it's referenced a lot. It's in the culture. It's in the, zeit, uh, the zeitgeist, the public consciousness. There, This show is very fun, but it has some weight underneath it. It has some themes to it. And... I'm going to talk about one of them now, and I'm going to talk about one of them at the end. Um, the first theme, the, the whole idea of uh, being a fraud or a huckster or a grifter, 
that's um, a compelling story. And it made me think about some real-life Herald Hills who have done this. Um, a very recent example is this Bishop Sycamore thing. They just had a documentary come out about that, which I watched even as somebody that uh, very, gets very bored by all aspects of football. This is a fascinating documentary. I highly recommend you watch it. I think it's called BS High. Uh, it was basically, uh, if you don't know the story in the news, they, the ESPN had a, a high school football competition and somehow, like I forget what they're called, but the best high school football team in the nation played this mysterious team called Bishop Sycamore and kicked their ass like to a cartoonish level. Like it just was so, the score, like even the announcers were saying, this is, they need to call this game. This is turning into a health and safety issue. And then he's like, is this even a real high school? And it turned out it wasn't. It was some guy that's a, that's a, a fraud, but also has aspects of Harold Hill because even though he's like a grandiose sociopath, you could tell that he also, like, there's part of him that really wants to see himself as a guy that uh, changes children's lives um, as their football coach, even though he ruined most of those children's lives. Here's another example that's relevant. Um, the saga of Zacharin Thibodeau here in Los Angeles. Um, I know a lot of you are scratching your heads saying, what the fuck is that? This is a little known turn of events, but it is fascinating to me. Uh, it's hard to find information about it. I learned about this on Facebook from friends in the LA theater community, which is a very niche, uh, small uh, thing. And uh, I, th what the, the, the website that was publishing all of this is defunct, but there's still some information. This guy, Zacharin Thibodeau, he went by a lot of different aliases because he kept running this scam over and over again. This was a musical theater scam guys I guess what he would do in a nutshell and I may have some details wrong someone should write a musical about this by the way it's going to be great that someone should be me I'm going to do it um, Zacharin Thibodeau aka Chance Taylor aka a lot of other names he would hold auditions for shows he would say that they were paid gigs and these people usually you know uh, amateur-ish actors that you know, don't uh, don't work a lot, would get cast in these shows. Hooray, congratulations, you're cast. And usually, like, the rehearsal process would be very suspicious. Like, they have you sing Happy Birthday a cappella, and then they have you, like, dance around for a second. And they're like, Curry, you got the part. And it's like, wait, this is a chorus line. Aren't I supposed to, you know, be able to be th triple threat? And uh, they would, uh, he would have people sign these contracts, uh, tax forms, because it was a paid gig. And then they would have very short rehearsal processes, processes like three weeks. They would never get into the space, the theater that they say it was in. They would, uh, f he would force these people to sell tickets to their friends and family to the show, like a minimum twenty at a certain price. And um, all the rehearsals would like be at somebody's apartment or in a parking lot. They did this with Rent. They did this with Chorus Line. They did this with Bear. And then sooner or later people start getting wind to the idea that, oh, this theater where everyone has bought tickets to see our show has no idea, like the, the theater has not been rented out and the rights have not been bought. And uh, then this guy skips town and is never heard from again. Very similar to what Harold Hill does with the boys' bands all across the country. 
And, you know, it's not funny. It sucks. Like, it's a shitty thing to do to people. And it's very sad. It's, it's an interesting story because it's equal parts funny and sad to me. And uh, I watched it all go down on Facebook, but I was addicted to the story. Apparently, they did finally catch up with this guy, and he got arrested in 2017. But then there was uh, some noises about maybe he was back at it. Uh, and there's, there are pictures of him, and, you, you, <laughs> and he's got different social media profiles with different names. Anyway, there you go. That's a modern-day Harold uh, Hill. Uh, and, and this is in order for you to appreciate that story. I'm, hopefully you're going into this knowing the story of the Music Man and Harold Hill. Let me talk about the history of this thing. Um, all of the team that went into the original Broadway production of the Music Man, or at least, okay, Meryl, Meredith Wilson, the genius who wrote the book Music and Lyrics, and Robert Preston, the star of it, the uh, wonderful, wonderful, iconic star of this, like they have such idyllic, American greatest generation stories. Like Meredith Wilson starts out by writing film scores for these old movies. Then he's World War II comes around and he's a band leader in the war. And then he, the war ends and he writes this thing. It's fascinating to me. Same like Robert Preston. He has starts, he has a, he starts out here in town at the Pasadena Playhouse. And then he has a career in pictures in the late thirties. And he's a, you know, he's a young leading man. And then he puts everything on hold after Pearl Harbor is attacked and he goes and joins the Air Force. Like these guys are not the musical theater gentlemen of the generations after them that we're familiar with. These are guys that'll call you Yella if you didn't go to war. These are fucking, you know, anyway, I'm not saying that's like good or anything. I'm just saying it's interesting. The generational difference there. Uh, Meredith Wilson, uh, he also wrote the song, It's Beginning to Look a Lot Like Christmas. I should tell you that, which uh, that probably gave him a lot of cha-ching, cha-ching over the years. So it took Meredith Wilson eight years and 30 revisions to write The Music Man. And it shows because it's a masterpiece. It was originally called The Silver Triangle. That was the original title. He did have some help with people. He wrote a book about the making of it that I have not read. It's called, But He Did Know the Territory. It's a reference to one of the lines. He's a fake and he doesn't know the territory. Um, I read an article about this book, kind of <laughs> summarizing it in the playbill. And here's some fun facts. He originally wanted the child, Winthrop, the kid with the lisp, to be a quote-unquote spastic child in a wheelchair which took me a minute to figure out what he meant by that. That was, that's now sort of an offensive term, but it was, you, you, they used to, even doctors used to use it to mean cerebral palsy. So he originally had cerebral palsy, this kid Winthrop. And cerebral palsy, in fact, or spastics, this was a passion of Meredith Wilson. Like he was very serious and concerned about it. One of the people that helped him write in early drafts and is credited as uh, he, he worked with spastic children. And these are quotes, by the way. I'm not using the word spastic. By the way, this next one, I'm just quoting Meredith Wilson. And this is from a long time ago, so don't hold me responsible for this. There's a couple words in here. I'm going to say them. I'm not going to bleep them um, because we're all adults here. The, 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 the views of Meredith Wilson and the terminology, the phraseology of Meredith Wilson is not the phraseology of I need you to like musicals. How badly I wanted to tell that spastics are muscularly retarded, not mentally retarded. He means so well. It's just funny. It's, that sentence 
made me laugh. And it could just because of how uh, well-meaning it is, yet how uh, dissonant to the ears it is now. <laughs> the Music Man was produced by Kermit Bloomgarden, who did a lot of things. I believe he did Anyone Can Whistle with my boy Sondheim. He pr also produced Death of a Salesman, and that's interesting, isn't it? This is a salesman story, kind of a different take on the old salesman paradigm. Um, this is the first time they awarded an, a Grammy Award to an original cast recording, fun fact. It did win the Tony Award over West Side Story, which is a bit much. I like the music band, but come on, that's... That's a sign of the times. West Side Story was not appreciated for the groundbreaking work of art it was yet. But The Music Man is also good. Yeah, it's a banner year on Broadway. I mean, if I were in New York in 1957, I would uh, count myself very great, uh, lucky. Because that is, there's some shit going on on Broadway that is very exciting. Now, Meredith Wilson didn't do a whole lot after The Music Man. He did make a musical called The Unsinkable Molly Brown. Uh, which, you know, to get back to the Titanic, uh, that's Molly Brown, of course, is Kathy Bates's character in the Titanic. Uh, and she tells the story uh, in that movie, Titanic, about uh, how her, how somebody hid uh, a bunch of money in cash in the oven and then somebody came home drunk and lit the oven on, uh, turned the oven on and it all burned up. That's a true story from Molly Brown's life. And she is unsinkable. She did survive the Titanic. So anyway, I've never seen it, never heard it. He also tried to adapt Miracle on 34th Street in the musical, um, which was a big flop. And then he wrote some weird thing called, uh, it's called 1491. And it was about Columbus trying to finance his voyage. What, how's that fun? It's just, yeah, it's about Columbus looking for backers for his voyage to, uh, yeah, India. Weirdly enough, he wrote a couple of different songs for U.S. presidents, like on behalf of U.S. presidents. The first one um, was for J. John F. Kennedy. It was for his, uh, it was a song called Chicken Fat, and Robert Preston actually sang it. It was for John F. Kennedy's youth fitness program, which if you don't know about that, it was, apparently it was a big part of JFK's domestic policy. He was very concerned about youth fitness. And there's a really funny clip of him. Also go to YouTube for this. You got a lot of things to look at. Um, so the, the, there's audio of JFK's, and I can't do a good impression, but he's, yeah, you, know, you see these you know, little porky kids coming home from school and they don't exercise at all. It makes you sick seeing these little chubby fat kids. It really is like that over the top. I'm not kidding. It's, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. So he wrote, I, I haven't listened to Chicken Fat. Maybe it's, I don't know why it's called Chicken Fat, but it's about, <laughs> don't eat chicken fat, youth fitness. And then he wrote a song for the Ford administration called Whip Inflation Now, which was uh, Ford's whole thing, whipping inflation. Whip it. You must whip it. My history with uh, Music Man is sparse. I've never, uh, I've never been in it, and I've actually never even seen a professional production of it on stage. I, when I was a very young child, I heard the soundtrack in my mother's car. I made up my own story about what the songs were doing. Um, I saw, when I was a teenager, I saw my friends in it. And in 2017, I saw my stepson in it, in a youth production when he was in fifth grade. He played the constable. It was adorable. And this production, this children's theater company, put on such a great show 
that I now work for this company. I found a way to uh, weasel my way in there and become one of their employees. Um, I was cast in this in a production very far away in Rolling Hills Estates, which is near Long Beach, shitty drive. And, but I was cast as one of the guys in the barbershop quartet. And I, even though it was far away and that was a small part, I really did want to do it. Uh, because, and it paid well. And it was a good company, but I had too many conflicts at the time. And it's also, it's not a good idea to cast me in a barbershop quartet because I'm, I'm a loud singer and I'm bad at blending. I, I have to like work extra hard to not sing over people. So let's talk about some songs in the show. Let's talk about the arc of the show. It's a show about a swindling two-bit thimble rigger, to use the phraseology of Charlie Cowell, the anvil salesman, one of the best characters in the show. Um... You know, very briefly, it's a, it's a guy, he's a traveling salesman, but he's a con artist. He's, he goes from town to town organizing boys' bands, and he gets everyone to buy all these instruments and fucking uniforms, and then he doesn't really know how to teach kids how to do music. And then right when it's time for them to perform, he skips town with all the money, and he usually, uh, I guess, fucks one of the women before he goes. Um, it begins with what some people have argued is the first American rap song. Rock Island. And then, uh, you know, You Got Trouble does the same thing. It's, uh, I don't know how I feel about that idea. Sondheim even said as much. Uh, when Hamilton came out, there was a New York Times interview where he was interviewed and he said, this isn't new. There was rap music of Meredith Wilson, the music man. And it's people talking to the beat of a, mu of a, a you know, to a rhythm. It's spoken, not sung. You ever meet a hell of a fella by the name of Hill? Well, I don't know much about bands, but I do know you can't make a living selling big trombones and rat-a-tat drums. No, sir. Uh, I love this first song the, on the train, Rock Island. It, Rock Island. It is so cool. And it does the, it's the first instance of what the show does all the way through. It's got these interesting little devices for all their songs. And this one, it's because they're on a train... And the tempo starts slow and then speeds up and then slows down again because the train is going from one stop to another. Cash for the merchandise. Cash for the hard goods. What do you talk? What do you talk? What do you talk? What do you talk? By the way, that guy that says, what do you talk? What do you talk? What do you talk? That reminds me of every Coen Brothers movie. I don't know if you have noticed this. Um, I've, I've watched a lot of Coen Brothers movies, and I forced my stepson to watch all of them also uh, during the pandemic shutdown. Um, in e nearly every one of them, when there's a group of people that are all talking and sort of uh, chiming in, there's always one character that keeps, re keeps repeating the same line over and over again. Uh, a few examples in uh, A Serious Man on the bus... Those kids are like, oh, we'll give the money. And like, he's a fucker. And then blah, 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 blah. He's a fucker. Like that one kid just repeats that. It's like their favorite thing to say. Same thing, little girls and no brother were at thou. One of the little girl keeps saying, he's a suitor. Um, the Hudsucker Proxy, the one guy in the boardroom keeps saying, not counting the mezzanine. Every time someone says how many floors up it is. And then is it really necessary to keep uh, giving you examples of this? I want to do one more. I can't think of one. What would be another example of this from a Coen Brothers movie? I'm saying it like that so that I can think of it while I... It's hard to remember, like, to pull things from your memory when you're in the middle of a podcast. Like that Harry Connick Jr. mess from last week. I'm going to stop trying. My point is, in every Coen Brothers movie, there's one character in the crowd 
that keeps saying the same line over and over again. I am talking slowly because I'm still trying to remember one. I know this doesn't matter to anyone. I'm going to pause it and try to remember one. Okay, I got it. In Fargo, the guy that is the father-in-law's business partner when he's trying to uh, get the money for the investment, he keeps saying, we're not a bank, Jerry. He says that multiple times. We're not a bank, Jerry. And I think the effect of it is like uh, it's some uh, yokel uh, that uh, is pleased with uh, a thing that they've come up with to say. And so they're saying it over and over again. And it kind of has that effect in Rock Island. That was a long way to go for that <sighs> anecdote. What do you talk? What do you talk? What do you talk? That's what you're thinking right now, podcast audience, to me. You're, you're at home thinking, what do you talk, Chris? Who cares about the Coen brothers right now? Every time Charlie Cowell, the, uh, the anvil salesman, opens his mouth, it is dynamite. His phraseology, the way that he puts things. You don't need me to tell you that. I, I think it's going to be shorter going through the music, man, because all I have to say about it is this is amazing. This, is, this rocks. This is perfect. I love the music, man. More so than I even thought that I did. After Rock Island, excuse me, did I just burp into the microphone? After Rock Island and Harold Hill arrives in River City, Iowa, the townspeople sing a song called Iowa Stubborn. Now, this song makes my brother-in-law angry. <laughs> uh, my brother-in-law, my sister's husband, is from a tiny town in Iowa called Blairstown. And I went there for their wedding. I haven't been back. I really wish I could because I love it there. I really had a good time there. Uh, Blairstown, and, and it's one of those, he's, he's on a farm in Blairstown, this brother-in-law. He grew up on a farm that's one of those places you see from an airplane while it's landing, and you're like, who the fuck lives there? Because it's surrounded by corn on all sides. It's curious that there's no corn in River City, Iowa, by the way. Maybe not all of Iowa is corn. I don't know. But anyway, a lot of corn in Iowa. Um, so shortly after meeting, my, my, he, my sister's then-boyfriend, Lance, uh, I was... he. We're talking about Iowa, what, what little I knew about Iowa included the music man. And so I said, like, do you know that song, Iowa Stubborn? And he immediately like went into this rant like, uh, yeah, that was written by, you know, a bunch of Broadway assholes from New York City who think they're so fucking smart about Iowans, about how stupid and stubborn they are. So I think it's bullshit. Um, Lance, I don't know if you're listening right now, but uh, you're wrong. Meredith Wilson was born and raised in Mason City, Iowa. Married his high school sweetheart there. And he calls this show, The Music Man, quote, an Iowan's attempt to pay tribute to his home state. And he wrote the fucking Iowa fight song for the University of Iowa that they still use. So you're wrong, Lance. That's not what this is, pal. <laughs> this is uh, about Iowa by Iowa. This guy has Iowa cred. So, you know. Apparently people in Iowa are stubborn. Um, I've only met uh, three or four. And uh, I can't speak to that. That's, uh, maybe that's an ugly stereotype. But Meredith Wilson seems to think it's true. Now, shortly after Harold Hill arrives in town, he sings maybe the best song in the show, You Got Trouble. And that's another one where it's mostly spoken. I feel like uh, if I wanted to waste your time, I could perform the whole thing by memory for you right now because it's one of those things where it's like uh, you're proud of yourself. It's a feat learning how to do it because it's a lot of words. 
uh, yeah, I'm not going to do it. I was about to do it, <laughs> and I stopped myself. Um, and let me say some. Let me make some obvious connections uh, between you got trouble and uh, our world today. It's advertising. It's uh, in order to sell something, you have to create fear and need. You have to make people feel bad. And very astutely, Harold Hill sees that there's a pool table, and so he makes people afraid of the pool table so that they will uh, buy into his boys' band idea. Everyone knows this. You don't need me to tell you that. I don't need to mansplain you got trouble. Uh, I just saw the movie Roger Dodger again. I've seen that movie a lot. I like that movie. It's uh, grossly underrated, the movie Roger Dodger. But that guy works in advertising and he says, yeah, uh, you can't sell something without making someone feel bad because it's a substitution game. You, you pinpoint what's missing in their life. Everyone's missing something. But and then instead of uh, taking steps to uh, fix what's wrong or develop a good personality, they go buy my stupid looking pair of cargo pants. That is what You Got Trouble is all about. It's a advertising huckster, con man. Then another device, you know, the piano lesson song. It's just so cool. I just love it. I just love how these songs arise organically out of things that happen in the story. In this case, Amaryllith is playing the piano. And so while Marion is teaching her to play the piano, she has a little conversation with her mom over musically over the piano <sighs> exercise. I am exhausting myself today, guys. I need to get to the end of this. We're at an hour and a half. Marion's mother, Mrs. Peru, is the most profoundly Irish character in musical theater history, rivaled only by Willie Conklin from Ragtime. This lady is super Irish. The lady from the original... Uh, cast is in the movie, which is what I used. And by the way, is a pretty good entry point. I wish that they had a filmed non-bootleg version of either the Craig Bierko revival from the early 2000s, maybe late 90s, or the Hugh Jackman revival that just came out. All that is really available is this movie version they made in the early 60s and a very bad TV movie version they made with Matthew Broderick earlier in the 90s, which I cannot recommend. Matthew Broderick is bad uh, in this role. Uh, miscast. Let's just put it that way. There's a whole to-do. Uh, oh, yeah. and Well, we had a whole to-do in my house. I was watching this with my girlfriend, Shailene. Uh, Amaryllis, uh, when Marion comes in, she calls her mom. And it kind of sounds like mum <laughs> in the movie. And so Shailene was like, that's her mom, right? That's her daughter? And I was like, no, that's just her fucking piano student. And she's like, no, she called her mom, rewind it. And we rewound it and uh, it did say, it's kind of sound like mom. But then if you look at the libretto, she says, hello, mom. I don't understand why Amaryllis calls Marion mom. Am I so ADD that I missed the entire plot point that Marion is Amaryllis's mother? I really don't think so. What is Amaryllis's problem, first of all? She's saying that she loves Winthrop and she's being super over the top about it. And then she like cruelly mocks his fucking lisp. I know that, you know, that it's a cliche that little girls that like little boys will bully them. But uh, that's kind of mean. Leave him alone. You say goodnight to him on the fucking moon every night or the star. Sorry, obviously the star. Barbara Cook was the original Marion. She has a beautiful voice. And I don't usually like soprano voices, by the way. I really like her soprano voices. I love her in this. I love her in She Loves Me. And I love her uh, a couple decades later in Follies in Concert when she made her little return. She was a big uh, Sondheim interpreter for a while. Like she did a lot of Sondheim stuff in her older age. 
and she died recently, I think in the last decade. Um, fun fact, the character of Marion, Peru, <laughs> is inspired by a real librarian that Meredith Wilson met during World War II, a medical records librarian. And that's awkward since he was, uh, he must have, I think he was married to one of his three wives during that point. Hmm. It's interesting. Um, what the fuck is like with Tommy putting a firecracker in Mrs. Shin's pants? It's very shocking in the movie. I mean, it looks like dynamite. It looks like he's going to murder her. And he's, and he's going to murder the whole town. He's going to blow up the town hall. The, uh, and so boys bands, one thing that is helpful context going into this is knowing the history of school bands. The first time this happened uh, at all in America was during the Civil War era. It got real popular uh, in the 20s, which is after the fictitious events here in the 1912 or whatever. Uh, so I guess the idea, the point is like, it's a real novel idea to have a boys band in 1912. It's not just like, oh yeah, we should have that because that's a thing that people have. No, it's like a big, uh, it's a big uh, new thing. I, it does seem like if he's going to go to all the trouble to get those instruments and to get those uniforms, like, is it that much of an extra expense to either hire a music teacher or, and just say like, I organized this and here's the music teacher or, you know, learn how to do the music himself. I don't know. He's, I don't know. Am I ignorant? Do I not understand things? He takes the parents' money, but then he does deliver on the instruments and the uniforms. Uh, pick a little, talk a little, pick a little, talk a little. I mean, that is a great song. Again, you got a little device there. You're likening the gossiping women to chickens in a coop. And it's a little on the nose in the movie. They show chickens in a coop nearby. It's like, we get it. We don't need to see chickens to know what that song is doing. Cheep, 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 cheep. I wonder, by the way, if the word Balsack would exist, if not for the writer Balzac. Something to ponder. Let me know what you think about that at some point. It's interesting uh, that Marion is not the standard old-timey trope of a librarian, like in It's a Wonderful Life when George Bailey goes back and then sees that Mary's a librarian, where you're just a spinster that never married and you're just an unfuckable woman that no one in the town ever wanted to marry. Like here, Marion is being slut-shamed um you know she's she had a they, they think that she had a lurid affair and that's why she's a pariah which um brings me to a song called the sadder but wiser girl is that song i i go back and forth on this is this progressive is this before it's time the sadder but wiser girl i guess i should ask an actual woman do any women listen to this there are a few different ways of looking at that song like the, the, I guess the charitable way of looking at it that makes it think like it makes you think it might be a progressive song for 1957 is that Harold Hill is singing about how he wants a woman who isn't chaste and innocent, but has a little fire and personality. The less than charitable way of reading this song is that Harold Hill wants a girl who's slutty enough he doesn't have to work too hard, that she's going to give it up easily. I guess it's the, 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 the use of sadder but wiser is what makes it a little strange. Um, but it's of the time. We can't judge things by the moral standards of the time. I was just wondering, like, I want to hear from you, ladies. Sound off, ladies. Sound off, my I need you to love musical ladies. Are you offended by the sadder but wiser girl 
or are you uh do you find it empowering i think you can be wise without being sad can't you i love the song about marion the librarian marion madam librarian um I have a newfound love for libraries as I approach my early middle age. I guess I always have liked libraries, but they, I, I, along with grocery stores, they are my happy place nowadays, sitting in one. And I love the library sequence in the movie, the library, that song and the dancing and the fact that they're in a library. It's very nice. I guess here's my first actual criticism of anything. I think we can do without My White Knight. It's the first, uh, it's not even a bad song. It's just an extraneous song. And I mean, it's the first misstep. And, you know, we got all the way to intermission, almost to intermission before that even happened. So that's impressive. In the movie, they um, replace the song, or rather they take a little piece of it and they jam it into a new song called Being in Love, which is better, but also pretty forgettable. Like, I think we're good on... Uh, uh, good night, my someone. Until there was you, I don't think Marion needs another uh, docile love song. She could use a different type of song, maybe. I don't know. Uh, the Wells Fargo wagon. It's a very catchy product placement. It's too bad we can't change the name of that wagon now. Now that we know that Wells Fargo is not something to be celebrated, my opened up all those fake accounts and committed all that fraud. Like Harold Hill, Harold Hill and Wells Fargo uh, became one in uh, the late uh, 2010s. You know, it's uh, and it's a feeling that we all now feel about the Amazon van, I guess now, uh, which is even more evil, of course, than Wells Fargo. Oh, oh, my Amazon order is approaching before 9 p.m. My things will be at my door. Not very good. I'm not good at musical improv. The I uh, the song Lida Rose. I have the song Lida Rose in my head like half the time that I walk around this earth. It's super catchy. The light arose, I'm home again, the sun in the sky. Um, when I got uh, strep throat and I was prescribed lidocaine uh, to numb my throat, I was walking around singing, lidocaine, I'm home again, cane. It's an example of the kind of fun that I have when I'm by myself. Watching the Buffalo Bills in this... Uh, quartet barbershop quartet makes me wish that i had been in one growing up or that i could be in one now or that i'd been in an acapella group at college i like the the feeling of camaraderie of singing with other people but again i do sing too loud but maybe that'd be a good lesson for me to not sing too loud when winthrop sings his version of gary indiana like it's very funny how <laughs> knowing that meredith wilson's original concept was supposed to be this real righteous thing about cerebral palsy and then they, they end up changing it into a lisp. And it's like very silly. Like it's the like explanation. Like it's supposed to be silly and cute that he has a lisp. Uh, there's long book scenes in this musical, but it, they're good. They're good. They're good book scenes. The whole bit with Charlie Cowell coming and talking to Marion and then Harold coming and talking to Marion. Like that uh, goes on for a while. It starts to feel like a William Inge play. I don't even know what that means. I'm a millennial that only knows references but hasn't actually read things. I love the idea that Charlie Cowell travels around with a suitcase full of anvils. 
And then like there you go clunk when he puts them down. It's just really fun. It's like a fucking cartoon strip Sunday funny. What struck me on watching it this time is that it really does seem like Harold Hill is just a slime ball working her all the way through. There's no point. I know we're on his side as the anti-hero of the of the piece, <laughs> but like it's not till very close to the end that he is at all vulnerable. Like he really is just tricking this lady, this nice lady all the way through. Um, but then of course he isn't tricking her that much because we find out she knew all along and she let herself be fooled. But um, it's also, it's hard to think Robert Preston is so good and he's in the movie. He was not at all how I imagined him when I listened to the soundtrack. I imagined him being a lot more, uh, goofy and spastic and so he's a little more still than I thought listening to him it's so hard to think of a woman finding this charming I guess today because because those men of that time turned into grandpas like his charm feels like folksy grandpa charm when he's uh courting her so it's like why is this hot woman <laughs> falling for this why uh Shapoopy? why does Shapoopy happen I like it and I don't usually like it when we're in a musical and everyone say, hey, let's do a song at this party real quick. What song should we do? How about Shapoopy? Okay. Um, you know, Shapoopy. What, what, what the fuck? Why is, it, why is she called Shapoopy? It's like uh, my friend Sam got very drunk one time and we were talking about Michael Jackson songs. He was like talking about how great they all were. And he was, t we talked about, uh, we gotta be, wanna be starting something. And Mama Say, Mama Sa, Mama Kusa. And he was like, yeah, it's like Mama Say, Mama Sa. What the hell does that mean? That's awesome. <laughs> and that's uh, kind of how I feel about Shapoopy. I'm confused by it, yet I'm on board. However, the verses of it and the whole uh, sentiment of that song is very anti sadder but wiser girl. It's kind of a step backwards. It's all about how uh, the woman that you should really go for is the one that's hard to get. And the one that kisses on the first date is usually a hussy. That's eh, not great. Marcellus, do better. Uh, and it's also just an exhausting way to go through life. What, hard to get women, you know. These young men out there don't need uh, you perpetuating that message. that you Because know? then you end up with this the chauvinistic mentality of pickup artists and the secret where it's like... Picking up a woman is like a fucking conquest and a thing with a series of steps rather than two people connecting on any level. Boy, I took that way too far. Shapoopy is not that deep, Chris. Calm the fuck down. Una White is the choreographer of this on Broadway and in the movie. She's the one that did the wonderful choreography also in Oliver, the film. She is amazing. She's very good at what she does. Buddy Hackett, of course, plays the part in the movie. He does a great job. He's very well cast in this. It's a nicely, nicely Johnson type role. Harold Hill, interestingly enough, gets truly interested in Marion when she says he doesn't like really get like actually he's not really on board until she says that she understands that he's a traveling salesman and he's going to go. Like once he realizes he doesn't need to flim flam her, that's when he's like, oh, and that's pretty shitty. That's pretty pathological. There's so many fucking songs, most of them by Led Zeppelin, about like, I gotta go, woman, I can't just stay grounded here with you. I gotta ramble, ramble on, babe, 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 I got to leave you. <laughs> and so um, the fact that when somebody says, I understand, you have to go, I'll see you later, and that makes you love them, 
<laughs> you're an asshole. Go fuck yourself. We realize at this point that he's also actually passionate about bands for the first time. And uh, that's the emotional core of the ending here is that just like that this motherfucker that started the, um, you know, Bishop Sycamore, he really loves football and helping children. He's just all, he can't reconcile that with the fact that he's a scam artist. And just like this uh, Zacharin Thibodeau probably really loves musical theater, but he likes to also bilk musical theater people out of their money. I think that's what's going on with Harold Hill here. You know, if he had his way, he would just be a straight uh, band leader, but he doesn't know a fucking C-flat from a C-B-sharp. That's the same thing. It was a bad example. So, um, Till There Was You is a gorgeous song, and it's so smart that after all the bells and whistles and devices and cutesy things, like, he just kind of ends the show with a simple, beautiful love song and one that is really endured because of its simplicity and its beauty. Our friends, the Beatles, covered this fucking song on one of their early albums. I first became into this song via The Wedding Singer. It's the song that the old lady is singing to her husband at their anniversary or renewing their vows or whatever. You know, the, the saucy old lady that he's, uh, he's given her music lessons. Um... They point out that he's lying and saying he's the class of Ot Five in Gary, Indiana, which, you know, obviously that's a lie. But like, if that's a believable lie, we are meant to believe that Robert Preston is 29 years old in this. He doesn't look 29. People looked older than they did in the old days because they didn't have the skin treatments we have now, I guess. Whatever. It's really fun how everyone's running around towards the end, especially in the movie. It just like really just seems very folksy. It's like, it's like, I like the end of Bye Bye Birdie where everybody's out like chasing, trying to look for their kids and here they're trying to tar and feather a guy. It makes you wish that life was like that. Life was like high school or like a small town. Um, when the band does finally play, they do sound pretty good for never ever playing in their lives. Like they're required to never play. And just listen and to think and go la di da di da di da di da. The fact that you can make that out at all is a, is a win. The film of this, which is what I used as my reference, a uh, good enough entry point. Um, you know, so that it came out five years after it was on Broadway. That son of a bitch, Jack Warner from Warner Brothers, the meanest Warner brother who became the head of Warner Brothers, he was dead set on casting a name. And he wanted to cast either Cary Grant, Frank Sinatra, or James Cagney. Now, two out of three of those would be terrible. One of them would be good. Cary Grant, Frank Sinatra, or James Cagney. Which one do you think is the one that would be good? Let's say it together now. One, two, three. Jimmy Cagney! Because Yankee Doodle Dandy. I feel like he could have done it. Those other two would have sucked, especially Sinatra. Sinatra is the most wooden actor on the fucking planet. Uh, Guys and Dolls uh, is a disaster. He, he should not have been in it. But um, Meredith Wilson, the writer, he had uh, written to his contract for the property. He had cast approval. And he said, you can't do this fucking thing unless you put Robert Preston in the lead. So we got the OG. We got Robert Preston in it. And um, the movie is pretty faithful. It has the audacity to shorten the train song which pisses me off, uh, the Rock Island. The Buddy Hackett, we got him in here with conspicuously painted black hair. We got Hermione Gingold, our old friend from Little Night Music. Ron Howard is the little boy. 
uh, who, what a terrible child actor. I guess he was adorable. It's a shame that they have to put really obvious sprinkled tears in his eyes when he cries. We got Shirley Jones, who I had a major crush on in middle school when I watched Oklahoma, and then I got severely depressed when I saw like a featurette of it where she was actually an old lady. At the time, she was in her 50s. She's still kicking today at 89. Uh, she, of course, is the mother from the Partridge family. Um, a couple of things from this. Also, why do angry mobs always have torches? It seems weird to me. That they an angry mob very quickly rises up in this story, but they already have torches. Is it that necessary to have torches? Half of them have lanterns, and then the other half have torches. They're not going to burn him alive. They're going to tar and feather him. No need for torches. At least twice in this movie, there's a weird thing where it's nighttime and then it's daytime. And what happened? Like, um, I think somewhere towards the beginning and somewhere towards the end, people are like going inside somewhere at night and then they're coming outside and it's daytime. Or maybe I just assumed it was night. I could be wrong. I guess, so finally, I think that the theme, the end of The Music Man is very resonant to me as a person uh, who not always, not just always feels like a fraud, but who has worked in children's theater for most of his life. And this company, the one that I mentioned that my stepson did The Music Man with and the company I would now work for, um... When I, the first thing I did for them was Anything Goes. That was the first show I did. It was an undertaking. It was 180 kids in the cast. And there were two entire casts. And it was, a th it was hurting cats. I was stressed out about it. I was under the gun time-wise. And every time I would walk around at work at this restaurant uh, with the singing waiters and the piano player would start playing De Lovely, I would get anxious as fuck. So I'd be like, God, this show's not going to be ready. And everyone's going to think that I'm a fraud and I'm going to get fired. And they're going to say, this is the worst show we've ever done. And this new guy sucks. Now, here's what always happens when I have those feelings uh, and those fears. It doesn't suck. And, it's do and, and I'm not even saying that it doesn't suck because I'm brilliant or anything. A, children... I forget every single time. Do not understand the concept of rehearsal and the idea that you should do it as good in rehearsal as you plan to do it on stage. So a lot of kids you find out on opening night have been holding back and then they do it for real, which they shouldn't do. And it should be my job to get them to not do that. But they tend to do that. But what connects it to this, <laughs> to the music man, is even if the show isn't good, the parents really just want to see their kids up there on stage. And that's how the music band ends. It's like, oh my God, I, they're gonna tar and feather me unless I prove that I started a boys band. And so they've never practiced one day in their life. And then they start playing this song in the band and it sounds like shit, but the parents don't care because their kids are up there in that fucking uniform. Like, oh, there's my boy playing the cornet. So there you go, folks. This is, um, I, I just applied this to my life. I contextualized it. I'm on the third from the bottom level of Bloom's taxonomy. Uh, I, I'm on the fourth too, because I'm analyzing. I'm contextualizing and I'm analyzing. I have a teacher, I have a professor this semester who won't shut the fuck up about Bloom's taxonomy and it's the most dull class I've ever attended uh, in my educational career. Uh, anyway, I made it under two hours today. I'm very proud of myself, unless I extend this ending for another six minutes, which I don't think I will. Thank you very much, folks, for listening to I Need You to Like Musicals. Um, I, 
only one other time in the course of doing podcasting this year have I been as concerned that it was not entertaining. And that was the Sunday in the Park with George episode. I'm worried that because of uh, the way that I was feeling when I started this episode, uh, having not eaten any breakfast or lunch, that it's going to be very uh, hard to listen to. But we'll see. Could be, who knows? Good night, my podcast. Good night, my show. It's time to turn off the MacBook Pro. I came up with that one on the spot, guys. That's the best one I've ever done uh, on the spot. Thank you. Have a good day. And until next time, so long podcast. Good old podcast.